listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. This show exists to help you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into this episode. Creative Pep Talk, the curse of Art Island. Hey guys, I think I see a creative breakthrough right on the other side of that weird pile of leaves in the middle of the Who told you this was gonna be easy? Wait, guys, that's not a setup for a still life drawing. Those are real human bones! Hollywood and overnight art successes have tricked us into believing the creative career path should be all unicorns and magic ponies. Wait, isn't a unicorn and a magic pony the same thing? But I'm telling you that Art Island is cursed several times over. But if you know that it's cursed, you'll be encouraged that you're on the right path instead of scared that you've gone the wrong way. Let's start digging. So we got our first factor meals and I am pumped to tell you about them. First off, we absolutely loved them. Delicious chef's kiss for the chef crafted dietitian approved meals that come straight to your door. I can definitely see how when deadlines are out of control or you're in a super busy season, how factor meals can lighten your load while still giving you options like veggie, vegan, and even low calorie. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing six to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can even pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Head to factormeals.com slash peptalk50 and use code peptalk50 to get 50% off. That's code peptalk50 at factormeals.com slash peptalk50 to get 50% off. So if I gave you directions to come to my house and I said, you'll know you're on the right road when you see the haberdashery. And you said, oh, okay. Because you didn't want to look like a moron who doesn't know what the heck a haberdashery is. And so you just drive anyway. Now you're driving along the way and thinking, what the heck is a haberdashery? It sounds like maybe it's a racetrack for rabbits, that's that's about, if I'm going to phonetically kind of just, you know, hands in the dark, try to figure out what that word means. And so you're driving on the road looking for a racetrack for rabbits as a landmark that's telling you you're on the right road to my house. You might drive right past the sewing shop that's the actual landmark. Why? Because as we all know, all of us smart, educated people, a haberdashery is a sewing shop. Now, I didn't actually know what a haberdashery is, but I do like saying the word quite a bit. So I looked it up to use it into the in this little story and figured out it was a sewing shop. I have a new idea of what we should call a haberdashery the opposite of an onomatopoeia. If an onomatopoeia is like a word that sounds like what it is, uh, (laughs) you know, buzz, buzz, like buzz sounds like buzzing. 
Haberdashery should be the opposite of an onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like the opposite of what it is. And there's tons of words like that. I'm calling for a redefinition, especially since there aren't a lot of sewing shops around these days. Anyway, here's my point. <laughs> my point is that if you don't know the landmarks that you're looking for that tell you that you're on the right path, you might be on the right path right now, not know it, and quit and turn back. And I think that the number one landmark on the creative career path is struggle, confusion, wrestling, hurdles, obstacles, all of that stuff. Those are the landmarks that you're doing it. But if you've ever been in confusion, if you've ever wrestled with your thoughts, wrestled with your medium, wrestled with your art, you know it feels exactly the opposite. As soon as you hit a brick wall like that or a big problem that you can't quite figure out in your creative work, you instantly feel like I must be on the wrong path. This was true for my Creative Career Path Handbook. Some of you guys know we just did a successful Kickstarter. We asked for $3,500, ended up getting something like $32,000, almost 10 times what we asked for. It totally blew us away. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that we would have the response that we did. And for all the people watching, it looks really simple. It looks like a path that was uh, full of magic. Oh, we wanted this little amount of money to make this book and we ended up making way more than that. How awesome. We made this little handbook and look at the magic that had happened. What you don't know is that I've been working on that book in one way or another for the past eight years and especially for the past four years. I've taught classes, working out on the blackboard, trying to figure out how to articulate this information, this, this process that I use to help strike the balance between creative and career, the sweet spot of money and art. And I've spent time on the blackboard with tons of failures and little successes, online classes, two or three drafts of the book that were at least three or four times longer than the book that I published. And there are tons and tons of illustrations that are going to die on pitch decks on my hard drive of other versions of this book. And there were tons and tons of obstacles and failures on that path and little tiny breakthroughs that I strung together to get to that Kickstarter. But you're not going to see that. And because you don't see it, and you don't see it in the lives of all of the creative people that you follow that end up doing things that you want to be doing, you don't know that the struggles are the sign not to turn around, but to keep going. So my wife Sophie and I are watching, we're addicted, binging on this show called The Curse of Oak Island on the History Channel. And if you don't know, Oak Island is an island off of Nova Scotia and it's got tremendous, mysterious history. There, uh, there's these two guys called Rick and Marty Lagina, not Rick and Morty, very confusing. Rick and Marty Lagina, these two retired millionaires spending their life's fortune 
trying to excavate and treasure hunt on Oak Island to try to crack the case of what the heck went on there. There's all kinds of crazy fact already found on this island. For instance, there's, you know, when the past 200 years, there have been caverns discovered, you know, digging down into tunnels where there are these nine layers of planks. And on the ninth layer, they find this, they're on the way down, they find gold chains. They find, uh, on the ninth layer, they find like almost 200 feet into the ground, this giant slab of rock that has these carvings, this ciphered code. And they decipher the code and it says something like 200 uh, feet down, you will find 200 million pounds of treasure. And so there's all these wild theories about where does that, what's going on? Why is all this stuff there? There's carvings everywhere. Some people think it's the Knights Templar from like medieval times. Some people think it's uh, the the Spanish pirates that had buried their gold there. Some people think that the lost ancient treasure of the Aztecs is at the bottom of this island. Nobody knows for sure, but that's what the Lagina brothers are doing there. They're trying to solve this mystery. And uh, <laughs> so they're spending all this time and they're doing all these calculations and they're digging all these giant holes and meeting with all these theories, theorists, and they're they're doing all this crazy work and there's tons and tons of millions of dollars in failures digging and tiny little successes that they string together to push forward. And you know what it reminds me of, don't you? The creative career path. This is what it's felt like to get where I am today. It reminds me of Rick and Marty Lagina with all these failed attempts to make a breakthrough and just tiny little wins over time that you string together. And I believe that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's Hollywood stories, I don't know if it's because the overnight success stories seem to travel further, I don't know if it's because the struggle and the pain and the obstacles uh, are just not the part that you see, but for some reason, the creative career path is like the curse of Oak Island, but I get a sense that we all feel like the creative career path is like national treasure with Nicolas Cage, where, you know, it's kind of like within an hour, you find a random map in your attic, find that you have some relation to royalty, and you go on this journey, and you maybe find one bad guy and there's an obstacle where it feels like all is lost for like 32 seconds, but then bam, you got the treasure. <laughs> I feel like for whatever reason, when I started on this journey, I thought it was going to feel, I thought I was going to be more like Nicolas Cage in National Treasure. And it turns out I'm more like Rick Lagina because the creative career path really doesn't look like that. And so on this island, the number one reason they're certain that there's treasure at the bottom of this soil is because of the curse. It's because of the booby traps. Because under those nine planks, 
they kept digging and they hit a booby trap that flooded the whole tunnel with ocean water. That every, there's every plot where they think that there's gold is covered in traps. And they call it the curse of Oak Island. And they say, there's no way that there's not something of tremendous value at the bottom of this. Some people think it's the Ark of the Covenant. Some people think it's the Holy Grail. Some people think it's Solomon's menorah. There's no way that these ancient people would have gone to this crazy trouble to keep it safe if there wasn't something of tremendous value down there. And so the curse, the booby traps, the struggle become the sign, the landmark that they're on to something. And so when they hit a massive brick wall, they don't get discouraged. The two brothers, Rick looks at Marty and you know what he says? Oak Island. Oak Island, what do you expect? Oak Island, we're, we're on to something. And I want you to feel the exact same way because I know when you're in the struggle, even today, right now, I'm going to go through some curses that you can expect to see as landmarks on the path to creative career success. And even today, you might be facing some of these. So I want you to just get your the metal detector of your heart open and just get a sense for which of these are on your plate today showing you that you're on a path to creative career treasure, baby. And, uh, <laughs> and when I want this episode to be your tool to when you find struggle in brick walls and obstacles and curses, I want you to look to whoever's next to you helping you excavate these tunnels and say, Art Island... <laughs> Our island, what'd you expect? Our island, exactly what we expected, exactly what we're looking for. These struggles are the landmark that's telling us we're on the right path. And so I've got four curses I want to share with you so you're aware of them, so you know what a haberdashery is to look out for it so that when you see the sewing shop, you know to keep going and not turn back. Number one, the curse of the iceberg. So you've probably heard this before. It's pretty cliche, but I think it's pretty relevant here. And it's this idea that success is an iceberg. What you see of success is all the stuff out of the water, all the shiny, pretty bits. But what you don't see is the mountain under the water. And that mountain is failure, hard work, all that rough stuff. And I think that it is especially true in the creative world. Maybe it's the most extreme version of that. And the reason is because often in the creative world, success looks like being known. And so the artists you know about, the reason you know about them is because they're known. They're well known to some degree. And and that might sound really obvious, but the point is that by the time you know about an artist, they're already known. And if they're known, that means that they're successful. And so what you can see of the artists you know is success. What you don't see 
is all of the crazy hard effort and work that took them to get to that point. And so I've been reading this uh, book called The 80-20 Rule and 92 Other Laws of Nature by Richard Cook. And uh, there's all kinds of really great stuff in there. But one of the ones that is most interesting to me is this idea of the law of increasing returns. And it's to do with the tipping point. And I want you to think about the iceberg as the tipping point, the tip of the iceberg, the part that you see, you see the tipping point for creative people. And if you don't know, this is what the creative, this is what the tipping point is. I'm sufficiently jazzed right now. I don't know if you can feel this, but for some reason, this episode has got me jazzed out of my mind. I don't know if it's that we're talking about Rick and Marty Lagina. We're talking about the curse of Oak Island or what, but I am very switched on right now for creative careers. (laughs) Golly. Andy, settle down. My goodness. But back to the tipping point back to the curse of Art Island, the tipping point. The idea here is pretty simple, but it's brilliant. And it's, and uh, I think it can be incredibly encouraging to you in the place that you're in right now, whether it's struggling in your creative career or struggling to break into something new after of already establishing a creative career. The tipping point's encouraging information. It's this idea that at the beginning of anything new, you will, there'll be an imbalance of investment and reward. You will have to invest a ton to get very little reward. But if you can stay in the game long enough to hit the tipping point, the scales will tip and you'll have to invest very little to see massive reward. And I think that the key to to understanding this curse is understanding the law of increasing returns. Understanding that if you invest right, that the growth that you see, that little reward that you see at the beginning, it will not compound in interest consistently, but it will compound exponentially. You might have heard that Einstein is quoted in saying, what's the most supernatural phenomenon on in the universe? Compounding interest. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about here. And so when I was starting out in my career, I thought, you know, the first three years were brutal and I was investing all of this time and resources and energy into what turned out to be very little reward, tons of failure, little breakthroughs. And I thought, man, if I string these breakthroughs together, if this growth keeps up over the next 40 years, I'm not even going to be in a place that I want to go. It's not going to work. I must be on the wrong path. But I had an intuitive sense of the tipping point that at some point I'm going to roll this boulder up this hill and hit a point where it's going to start rolling downhill. And I wish I would have been more schooled in the rule of exponential increasing returns. In the book, The 80-20 Rule and 92 Other Laws of Nature, he talks about this ancient myth of the man who invented the game of chess in India. And so he invents this game and the king wants to reward him for doing such an incredible job and inventing this incredibly uh, fantastic game. And you see, the guy who invented chess, of course, was a little bit crafty. 
and he pretended to ask for only a modest reward. And he said to the king, I don't really want much. All I want is rice and I want it delivered kind of in this pattern. So if you take the chessboard, on the first square of the board, I just want one grain of rice. The next next square, I just want two. And then I want it to follow that pattern. So two becomes four, four becomes eight, so on and so forth, all the way through all the squares until the last square of the chessboard. The king, who is not a mathematician, is like, okay, let's do it. And only to find out that if you carry that pattern on, by the time you get to the last square, it's like 150 billion tons of rice. <laughs> because it's the law of exponential increasing returns. And what I have found to be true in my own creative career, that at some point a few years ago, maybe about four years ago, I started to make my way over that tipping point. And guess what happened? It went from getting one client this year to two the next year, to four the next year, to eight the next year, to 16 the year after that, to 32. It doesn't grow consistently. And so I know that if you're at the start of a new thing, it can feel incredibly frustrating because you're putting all of these resources in and seeing mostly failures and little breakthroughs that if you chain them together amount to pretty much nothing. I get it. That's incredibly discouraging. And not only has that been true in my creative career, it's been true when I went into trying to write nonfiction. It went into when I started to get into kids books. It went into when I got into editorial illustration. Every single new endeavor I've ever done has had the same results. And it's been the laws of exponential growth. And so here's my message to you. If you're in the early days and you are investing a ton, seeing very little reward, I would just want to encourage you and say, Art Island, what'd you expect? That's exactly what you should expect, but you shouldn't expect for it to always be like that. Keep investing. And another thing I want to say is it's a marathon. In order for this rule to work out, you have to understand the equation. The equation is, the equation is consistent effort over time equals inconsistent exponential results. The big factor there is time over time. There are tons and tons of people that did not understand this law graduating with me, you know, starting out the year that I graduated, that went into a full-on sprint, taking uncalculated risks, investing so much effort that they burnt out within a year or two. And if you do that, you're not going to be in the game long enough to see the harvest. And so I encourage you, keep giving that effort, but make sure that you do so in such a way that you can stay in the race to see that magical ingredient take hold. Time. Number two, the curse of the Frankenstein. And this is what I mean by that. So, one of the ways that the Lagina brothers ensure that they're in the game long enough to see those exponential results is they make it happen by having the History Channel cover it. 
which means supplemental income. It means that they're not just using a fixed amount of money that they're draining. They have cash flow. They have, they have, uh, they've turned it into a show that have helped pad out their margins. And I think that this goes into this interesting, uh, principle that you've got to embrace. And it's this idea that you've got to quit hoping that you make it, that man, I really hope we make it to start figuring out how to make it happen, how to make it work. You've got to quit waiting for your big break and just start breaking stuff. And, and this is what I mean by that. There was a massive shift in my perspective when I'm hitting all of these obstacles and all these hurdles like cash flow. Cash flow is the thing that's going to take you out of the race. If you don't have enough cash, you're going to have to shut down the operation. And so if you know that the key ingredient to this stew is th this, th this is the bay leaf of your crock pot stew. It's time. You got to have it. You don't got bay leaf. You got nothing. <laughs> you can't have a good crockpot stew without a bay leaf. I just want to keep talking about bay leaves. You ever seen all those people on Twitter that don't know what bay leaves are? That they get them stuck in their uh, <laughs> they get stuck in their Chipotle burrito bowl, and they're like, "Yo, Chipotle, why are you putting straight up leaves in my burrito?" Um. Anyway, bay leaves—they're fantastic. But the bay leaf of your creative career is time. And you can't, you got it, it. Well, I guess the better, <laughs> the better uh, analogy of the crock pot is that a crock pot's key ingredient and key secret is time as well. So I guess your creative career is like a crock pot. We're learning on the fly, uh, but <laughs> but you got it. You can't just you just can't cook a stew in a frying pan. <laughs> Here's my point. My point is, one of the key ways, one of the key breakthroughs for me early on in my career was a shifting of my mindset from thinking, man, I hope I find my big break, to I'm breaking stuff. Meaning, instead of worrying about, I hope I make it, to how am I going to make it? I have to make it. How do I make it work? How do I make it happen? How do I get, how do I stay in the game long enough? for the crock pot to do its thing. And so instead of thinking, ooh, I hope that job comes in today, I thought, how can I make 150 bucks like Uncle Rico? How can I, you know, instead of playing patty cake with uh, my friend Pedro all day, how do I get out there and start slinging some Tupperware? You know what I'm saying? So here's what I did. I just started looking for any way to get that cash flow going to keep me in the game. So I got retainer clients. I got uh, passive income. I started doing portraits. I started doing flyers for my mom and dad's church. And you know, for someone who had worked with their dream clients, this felt a little bit demeaning, but it went, made me go from hoping I was going to make it to making it work. And actually, I just want to do an aside real quick and talk about doing flyers for my parents' church early on in my career, like the first couple of years. I just want to say, on the show, when I talk to you about creative fulfillment and financially thriving, I don't mean prestige and fame. When there was a massive breakthrough of making it work, working and doing these flyers for me, in my heart where I realized the process of 
making these brands for the church and illustrating these ideas wasn't that different creatively than working with the massive brands that I loved. And I realized that as long as I could be doing the processes that were within my strengths and I was being appreciated for what I did, that that would be creative fulfill, creatively fulfilling enough. And if I was financially thriving, then that's all I needed. I didn't need the rewards. I didn't need the, the awards. I didn't need the prestige. And so I just want to encourage you, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be super famous or, or impressive to find the sweet spot of your creative career. That's not what the show's about. And so if you feel the pressure of that, please, I encourage you to not go for prestige, but go for process, a process that you enjoy, a process that rewards you financially in the ways that you need. Anyway, that's just me encouraging you because I don't want to be, I don't want you to get it twisted and, and, and think that this is all about, you know, being famous or something. Anyway, that's what I mean by that. There was a shift in me early on that went from hope I make it to how am I going to make it work. And I want you to realize that for most people, this is why I call it the curse of the Frankenstein, a creative career looks like a career Frankensteined from a whole bunch of things. What are the types of jobs? Not that just give you the most money or what are the jobs that you know look the coolest? What are the jobs that allow you to have the energy and the time to stay in the game and keep investing? And maybe, you know, most creative people I know, they have their hands in a few different pots and all of those pots give them different things. Some of them give them creative reward. Some of them give them financial reward. All of them, the best that you can Frankenstein that together and get the chemistry of all those things working in the right way. That's how you're going to make it work. So quit waiting around for the big break and start breaking stuff and mashing stuff and create your Frankenstein. And I want you to feel no shame in that. I don't know many artists through history that didn't have a Frankenstein of a career. And actually, for me personally, the times that I've been working all on the same thing, nine to five, like just doing illustration all the time, were the most miserable, least creative career sweet spot years that I ever had. I love to have a vast ecosystem. I love that Frankenstein. Love you, Frankenstein. Number three, the curse of the camel's back. <laughs> so your hope is a camel and every failure, every time you convince yourself that that is the X marks the spot that's going to change everything and it isn't is another straw on the camel's back. You know, I feel you know, one of the things that interests me most about creative people, one of the reasons I like interviewing them is that creatives have to have a philosophy. You have to have a theory. And I feel like, you know, every album that a, a creative person makes, they go into that album with a new philosophy of how they're going to get their best work out, how they're going to make the change the mistakes from the last album and what have you. So I love the philosophy that each individual creative person comes up with and there's, you know, there's no right way. There's a billion different ones that work and there are a billion different, you know, they're all interesting and different in their own way. And so when you come up with that philosophy, 
you're drawing an X on the map like the Lagina brothers. You're saying, I think if we dig on this part of the island, we're going to find the treasure. And when you make that album, undoubtedly, you are not going to find all the treasure that you thought that you were. And essentially, another straw is going to be added to the back of your hope. And, and once you string enough of those failures together, you're liable to break the camel's back. You're liable to be in a place where you're hopeless, thinking, is this ever going to happen? Is it ever going to work? And I feel like the secret to dealing with these straws piling up is just carrying it as a light burden. Here's what I mean by that. On the Curse of Oak Island, one of the things that happens, like 18 times an episode, the narrator will say, if they find like a, a, a square object in the shaft, they'll say, the narrator will say, a square object, with a question mark at the end, a square object, could it be the clue that breaks open the Oak Island mystery and changes everything? <laughs> and if they find uh, a gold ring, a gold ring, could it be the the clue that changes Rick and Marty's lives forever? And as a viewer, you're like, probably not, because you've lost hope, because you're like, this happens 18 times an episode. None of them have been the thing that changes everything forever. But I think if you will stay in that place you st of, of lightheartedness that you'll be able to deal with the straws on your back stacking up because you're kind of like we're all kind of like held hostage to our art am I right? so they found that the people that can survive a hostage, hostage situation even like an ongoing long one they find this balance of accepting that they could be there forever and also hopeful that their luck could change any day and they could be saved. And I think that it's staying in that balance of believing that this next philosophy you have is going to solve it all and also the reality and the realism to say, probably not. It's probably going to be a little bit better than it was last time and some things will be for the good and some things for, will be for the bad. If you can stay in that uh, zone, then you can continue to stack up these straws on the back of your hope and not crumble and not break the back. For me personally, this looks like, you know, every time I change something in my style or I try a new uh, market or whatever, I try to keep that kind of narrator. I got to find my inner narrator that says, you know, I, I was drawing almond shape eyes, but now I'm going to start drawing perfect circle eyes for my characters and when I come up with this new philosophy my narrator says perfect circle eyes could it be the answer to all of Andy's creative career dreams could circle eyes be the thing that finally changes it all or maybe I think you know what I can't work purely digital. I think I need to mix a little analog paint, analog part to my process. 
analog could be could it be that adding analog to Andy's process is the thing that sends him over the edge? Is it the thing that finally unlocks the secrets to creative career treasure buried millions of years ago? Well, the, any treasure buried millions of years ago, I think would have had to have been buried by dinosaurs. So that's not treasure I want to find. But you know what I'm saying. And actually, my dad... Uh, he was really good. I feel like he's really good at this, at keeping everything light, keeping everything positive, even when you're hitting obstacles. He has this kind of humorous way about him. And uh, actually, speaking of mysteries, one of his is this idea that like when we would lose the remote, my dad would, I'd be like, Dad, we can't find the remote. And my dad would be like, this is one of the greatest mysteries of all Millers of all time. Or say, hey, did you see where that package was that was on the table? A missing package? This is one of the greatest mysteries of all Millers of all time. And if you can find that lightness, if you can find that way of keeping that hope camel alive that says every single next idea I have could be the one that changes it all, but probably not. If you can sit in that space, then you can sit in that thing for the long haul. So number four is the curse of the moat. The curse of the moat. And here's what I mean by that. Imagine, if you will, a medieval scene where there's a castle having a jousting tournament and the winner gets to be crowned next king over the kingdom. But there is a wrinkle in this offering and here's what it is to be in the tournament the jouster must swim through crocodile infested moats giant moats dangerous moats and all of the jousters in the land come and attempt to get through the moat and the first tournament goes down, let's say 70% of these jousters die in the moat. The ones that don't get mangled. <laughs> kind of dark. Uh, and the person who actually wins isn't the best jouster. It's the best moat swimmer. It's the person that trained for the moat, not for jousting. And here's the thing. You might already know what I'm talking about. The people that thrive in creative careers, they're often people that are at least as good at the career side as they are the creative side. But so many of us, we don't go into creative careers because we're good at business. We go in because we see people in the kingdom, in the castle, jousting it out, doing the creative stuff. And we think, you know what? I think I could do that. But we neglect the training and the giant moat that's in between us and thriving in the castle, which is a moat of business. And so 
If you've never taken business and career as seriously as you have taken creativity, then you are one of the jousters that's going <laughs> to get destroyed in the moat by angry crocodiles. And we don't want that. And so here, here's what I, for the curse of the moat, this is what I suggest you do. It's pretty tactical. I feel like in early in my career, there was a big shift where I started focusing on career instead of creativity for a season of my life. Now, I don't feel like I'm there anymore. I feel like I'm now I'm more in a balance of those two things. But I felt like it was good for me to go through like a boot camp to prepare for the business moat. And so here's what I did. Uh, or no, here's what I suggest you do, something in this vein. See, one of the things that happens when we look at the moat is that we see all these crocodiles and we're just like, what's even the point? I'm a squishy, weird, creative person. I'm just not going to thrive and get through that moat. Might as well just give up. And, you know, one of the things that I've suggested in the past to help you wrap your head around this business side is the idea, Kevin Kelly's idea of the 1,000 true fans. So Kevin Kelly, co-founder of Wired, talks about how you don't need millions of fans anymore to survive as a creative person. All you need is 1,000 true fans, people, uh, you know, 1,000 people that will spend $100 on your art every year, and you'll have a $100,000 salary. Now, maybe initially that sounded great, and you think easy, and then you start working on it, and you're like, damn, 1,000 true fans is harder than it sounds. And that moat all of a sudden seems to have way more crocodiles than you realized before you jumped in. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's my solution. Kevin Kelly has the 1,000 true fans. Andy J. Pizza has 1,000 meh fans. 1,000 meh fans means that, it's kind of hard to say that sentence. <laughs> it means that uh, what about not getting 1,000 people in a year to give you $100 each? What about getting a thousand people to give you $30. That's a, for a lot of people starting out entry level, $30,000 uh, is a good starting point. And a lot of entry level stuff doesn't even start there. You know, you know, uh, teachers starting out make that much money. So if that's, I think, I think that's a, if you're overwhelmed by the moat, then I suggest creating some kind of goal that helps you break it down into manageable chunks with clear goals and clear things that you can do through sheer effort. And I think 1,000 meh fans is something you can do through sheer effort. And let me just give you a hypothetical. If you want 30, if you want 1,000 people to give you $30 in a year, here's something I would do. And this is just purely business exercise. It's not a creative exercise. It has minimal creativity in it. I would say if I was trying to get 1,000 people to spend $30 on my art, here's what I would make. I'd make a poster of a cardinal. And here's why. Because seven states in America have a cardinal as their state bird. And people identify one of the values that you can, one of the five values that you can speak to with your business is identity, like bonding, how pe and people like to um, buy things and, and spend money on things that are part of their identity. And so people like to buy things that are about their state. 
if they're proud of the state that they live in. And so the cardinal is the state bird of seven states. So you could make a thousand copies of this poster, and then you could literally every day make another phone call to shops in those seven states that carry posters, that carry state stuff, and tell them that you have this poster, that you're willing to sell at wholesale, Maybe you need to make, you know, make the posters nice, sell them for 60 bucks, have wholesale them for 30 bucks, and just literally learn about sales through digital door-to-door sales. And early in my career, I did a lot of things like that. Not that idea exactly, but I wish I had that idea when I was uh, just starting out because I would have. But I sent so many emails and so many phone calls and so many uh, just just getting the word out like it doesn't matter how good you are getting the word out is a giant moat and so i see so you could literally and you could do craft shows and you could sell them on the internet and you could there's an infinite way of just pounding the pavement and trying to get 1000 people to buy that poster at 30 bucks and if you did that you'd have $30,000 and it would also be more importantly than the $30,000, it would be an education in business. And you would be training for the moat because it's not all creative jousting. You're facing these or other curses today in your creative career and you feel overwhelmed and scared. I hope this episode convinces you do not take Troy's bucket. All right, I should probably explain what I mean by that. I had a mystical moment, which you know I'm a fan of, while making this episode. I got interrupted the day I was recording this, and I couldn't record this last part. Uh, And I ended up not getting to finish it. And so that night, Goonies was randomly on TV. If you are part of the 2% of people listening to this that didn't watch Goonies 18 times as a kid... Goonies is a classic 80s movie where some kids find a treasure map in the attic and they go on a wild adventure. You know, it it is the Hollywood treasure story. They find these underground tunnels that are lined with booby traps and even cross the path of a smashed skeleton, which is the remains of a famed treasure hunter called Chester Copperpot. And at this point, at the they come to the bottom of a well that has a bucket leading to the surface. And the female lead of the film, a teenager called Andy, see, no relation, sees her boyfriend Troy at the top of the well joking around with his friends. Troy offers to pull up the bucket and save them one by one. But the lead character, Mikey, played by Sean Astin, a.k.a. Rudy, a.k.a. Samwise Gamgee, uh, it's Sean, Mikey, as a kid, shouts, It's their time! It's their time up there! Down here, it's our time! It's our time down here! It's kind of a weird sentence, but I felt it. He said, If that's all over, the second we ride up Troy's bucket. Troy's bucket is the easy way out. And I know... It's hard to look up to your heroes up there at the top of the iceberg, having reached their tipping point, soaking it up in their creative dreams, relaxing, joking, just like Troy and his buddies, while you're stuck, flailing under the water, 
struggling, striving to figure out how you're going to reach your tipping point. But it's their time up there and it's your time down here. I've made a few big changes in my life. You know, over the years, I I quit smoking after five years of like smoking a pack a day. Uh, This was back high school and college after I got out, I quit. I lost 60 pounds and quit binge eating uh, in my late 20s. And I've built a thriving creative career, a journey that took me years and years of struggling. And sometimes when people see this, they'll say, man, you have so much willpower. How do you, you just have so much willpower. And I always say, no way. I really don't have that much willpower. I mean, I wouldn't have to have fought off all these addictions and problems if I had tons of discipline to start with. It isn't discipline. I'm sure of it. It is determination. Once you see the power of facing obstacles and overcoming them, the joy of that, once you've tasted the sweet taste of triumphing over something that was hard and tasting the reward, it is a totally new addiction And the taste of the depth of joy that comes from overcoming an obstacle makes the cheap pleasure of taking Troy's bucket uh, just seem like an afterthought. And I think the moment that determination is born, you quit hoping that something will happen and you say, how am I going to triumph over this? How am I going to make it happen? Whatever it takes. And... Anything worth doing isn't currently being done the way that you do it or isn't being done at all. And that means that there are going to be hurdles. And it's these hurdles that tell you, this hasn't been done. This matters. When Mikey finds the remains of Chester Copperpot, he's not scared of this dead skeleton. He's encouraged. Why? He says that the ghost of the pirate, one-eyed Willie, made these booby traps and that if he made these elaborate traps there's no way that he would have gone to all that trouble if there wasn't something of incredible value at the bottom of these tunnels and yes I'm talking about money I'm talking about reaching your creative dreams but honestly there's a deeper treasure in my in in my personal experience when you go through struggles and you work for something, something of incredible value is sure to be found. There's a classic line from this. Uh, there's a, there, if you don't know, there used to be this thing called Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy on Saturday Night Live. And it was kind of like uh, kind of Michael Scott-ish, if you will, from The Office saying things that are supposed to be profound, but they're really ridiculous. And one of my favorites that I've ever heard was uh, this line. Pirates were always going around searching for treasure and never realized that the real treasure was the fond memories they were creating. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. And actually, Rick Lagina said something really similar in a very sweet, heartwarming letter to his brother and fellow treasure hunters that he put in a time capsule on Oak Island. And as cheesy as it sounds... When he was reading this letter, I was crying like a baby. I really was (laughs) crying so much because we'd binged this show, watched for weeks, and 
And it is, and already, the whole show, you just know it's not about the treasure. It's about Rick and Marty doing this thing in their retirement, spending their money, spending time together, working on something together, struggling together. Uh, and you, and they just, they always call each other brother. Like Rick calls Marty little brother. Marty calls Rick big brother. And it's just like the sweetest uh, thing in the world. And Rick reads this letter and he says, the real treasure is all the time spent on this adventure with my brother. And I'm convinced in my own journey that not only is pushing through struggle the bay leaf secret ingredient to finding a deeper joy in your life, like if you will triumph over something, cheap pleasures will not be able to compare to that joy. And I really think if you can, I think being a human successfully in terms of even just evolutionary success of like, you know, walking your path as a social animal, giving value to those in your tribe, uh, like the key to even just that on a scientific level is learning to find joy in, in providing value through struggle. But even beyond that, that might be the bay leaf of, of, of life, but I think there's even a better bay leaf and 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 I think it's it lies in the, this fact that the most important thing in life is meaningful relationships. I didn't know I don't know if you <laughs> I didn't mean for this episode to be about me telling you remember the people in your life they're the treasure in your life. But we're social animals, we derive meaning from our relationships and we get that meaning by delivering value, even when it's a struggle, even when it's hard, when we work for something. You know, do you have any idea how much joy it gives me to struggle to give you as much value as I possibly can deliver on each episode and then hear how it's helped people and changed and, and, and just been an encouragement to people? It gives me so much meaning in my life. And I don't think anything expands and deepens uh, the bonds with people like struggling alongside them through booby traps and uh, alongside people you love. So this is kind of my own Rick Lagina letter to some of the people that have been big uh, game changers in my treasure hunt of my creative career. So I've been collaborating with my buddy Andrew Nyer for the past seven years. When we met, we were both struggling to make our creative careers work. We were both kind of at the bottom of the ladder and struggling. We had young families. It was like a hard season, and we had to go through some tough times. We spent a lot of time over the years using our very different strengths to help each other make progress. We spent a lot of time on the phone talking about things, you know, getting feedback, soundboarding, trying to slowly but surely figure out what our path was going to be. And two weeks ago, Andrew and I were in Las Vegas for a few days working on a project for a client. And uh, we are f we're fortunate enough to travel together a few times a year to work together. And we deeply, we both deeply cherish these times. And we've actually made lots of effort to keep that a part of our individual practice. And they're kind of like just little retreats, work retreats where we soundboard and chat and and laugh and talk and draw for days and 
often we're chatting about the tough times and we revisit the conversations we had back then and when we were confused and struggling and working with nightmare clients. And these creative career booby traps are the bedrock foundation of this brotherly friendship. We've struggled and celebrated with each other. And Andrew, if you're listening, you are a real brother to me. We still have struggle, struggles working together, you know, clients that are tough or, or situations that are hard. And whenever one of those projects hits a hiccup, I, I think we've grown a lot in that we don't even consider taking Troy's bucket. We just look at each other and say, Art Island. <laughs> Not really. If we did say that, that'd be really weird. But just metaphorically, we la- we're laughing about it. We, we know that this is the way that it goes. We know that this is what makes it, uh, you know, deepens the joy of working together is having to work through something together. And we just find ourselves laughing and knowing that a project can go sideways in a second and for the most ridiculous reasons. Now, the most important bond that I, that has built and strengthened uh, me and my career uh, and has been increased by fighting through booby traps is obviously my friendship and partnership with my wife Sophie we are partners in everything more than you guys could ever know we you have no idea how involved Sophie is in everything that I do and we ride the creative career roller coaster weekly it's hard to chart this kind of territory, as you know, and it often means exhaustion, frustration, and straight-up mad cases of downright grumpies. Sophie and I have been through so much personally, but a ton professionally. And you know what? Something what's freaking nuts? Sophie is British, and I met her, got married, and our and had our first kid in the UK. And do you? This is something I we re, me and Sophie were talking about this the other morning. And we always forget that the catalyst for moving back to America, this is in 2009 when we first, the first time we talked about moving to America. Do you know what it was? You're never going to believe it. I was working as a designer in-house at a nonprofit and a speaker came and inspired me and I had a vision to go back to the U.S. and start a movement of some kind to help creative people thrive. I told this, this, I reminded Sophie about that conversation we had and we both got teary-eyed talking about it because I'd started getting some good clients while I was in the UK and my creative career was starting to take off and I wanted to go home and help other people do the same thing because it was such a big deal to me. So I went home, I told Sophie my plan and I knew that I was asking the biggest thing in the universe of her to leave her home and family and move to a foreign country and start something that helps creative people thrive and not really know exactly what that meant. But she was deeply inspired by this vision. She, she has a giant heart for creative people too. And she said, yes. And I often forget this story and here's why, because, and that's why I don't tell it very much. It's because we didn't, uh, we didn't because we didn't move to the to America. We moved to you guessed it, Art Island. 
The visa was incredibly difficult to get her over there. Tons of things went wrong. It took months of focus and cost my creative career quite a bit. The minute we got to the States, everything went wrong. My creative career died on the table. Bills were stacking up. None of our ideas to help creative people were working. And we needed more help than anybody so honestly, at some point, we just completely forgot about why we moved. We forgot about helping other creatives. We were just trying to help ourselves. And it was a hard time that I've detailed in, in brutal detail in this podcast many times. I'm going to save you the, the, the spiel. But booby trap after booby trap after booby trap. Many, many uh, times I nearly took Troy's bucket. I, I started a career in social work and actually interviewed for a a better job in social work that they begged me to take and I was super close to doing it but I just didn't feel like it was my calling I felt like it was my time down there in the struggle to get to that tipping point and I and I definitely would have taken those Troy's buckets lots of times if it wasn't for Sophie's never ending belief in me and in us to succeed when things started to work out, when we're surviving and then thriving, the podcast kind of just happened. And I didn't even really think about how it related to this vision that we'd had years and years before. And I, I didn't even realize it was basically the reason we came to the States. It's very spooky stuff. And I think about if I didn't, if I would have taken those Troy's buckets, we wouldn't have a total of 3 million listens to this podcast. We wouldn't have the reviews on the podcast that say that it's life-changing. And I know that's hyperbole, but still. But more than all of the impact that the podcast has that it wouldn't have had I taken Troy's bucket, one thing we wouldn't have is as strong of a marriage and family as we do. Because blood runs thicker than water. But gold is thicker than blood. And, and this bond, she, Sophie might not be my blood, but the bond that we have is forged in the fires of the curse of the booby traps of Art Island. And the booby traps keep coming. And as long as you're trying to do meaningful work, you can expect booby traps. But my hope is that you don't try to avoid them. My hope is that you learn to celebrate them. This past week, even, Sophie and I have had a a bunch of crappy booby traps come up, honestly. Stopping us from making moves we wanted to do, things that were unexpected. And we have been pretty gutted. We spent the day arguing and fighting and aggravated with each other. At the end of the day, I looked at her and I, I wanted to make amends, but I was still mad. So I said, you know what? I love you so, so much more than I hate you. <laughs> and you know what? You know what I really meant, right? When all this crap is going down, I just looked over at her and I said, Art Island, what do you expect? It's Art Island. There must be something here of tremendous value to have curses this big. Can you imagine if I really said that to her? But that's what I meant. Thank you guys for listening. 
Thanks for all you guys do for the podcast to make it happen. Uh, thanks to the Patreon backers who are uh, the foundation of this show. Thanks to everybody else doing all you can to spread the word and, and help as many creative people as possible. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for the rest of the soundtrack and for editing this podcast so beautifully. Until we speak again, stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.